The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We'll be reading Luke 22 from 31 to 38. And just reading the scriptures and taking it in. Jesus talking to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, well, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to the scriptures this morning, we have this short passage about Jesus preparing both Peter and the rest of the disciples for what is coming. And in that, Lord, there are no doubt nuggets of truth which after mining them will become for us strength and nourishment to our souls. But we recognize this morning that that is not an exercise that we can accomplish in the strength and energy of our flesh. So God, we ask you to awaken our spirits by your Holy Spirit. We ask you, God, to give us ears to hear your voice this morning. We ask you, Lord, to awaken us to your presence in such a way that the words of Scripture breathe life into us again. Draw our hearts to you. May we have ears that are ready to hear and minds that are ready to receive and wills that are bent and surrendered to you. God, have your way in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We'll be taking a look at this short little passage with Peter and the rest of the disciples, and I'm going to try and move fairly quickly uh, through the text itself. But before I can do that, I feel like it's important for us to kind of orient ourselves in the context of the story of the gospel and what is happening here at this precise moment. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been 
sort of sidestepping popularity and the limelight. Now, during his three years of ministry, he demonstrated absolute authority. Absolute authority. He displayed his authority over the natural world by calming the seas, walking on water, by commanding fish to enter nets so that fishermen could see the display of his power. He has absolute authority over the natural world, and that is clear by how it responds to his command. He displayed not only his authority over the natural world, but his authority over the elemental world. How? Well, by turning water into wine, the very elements themselves changing by the miraculous authority of Jesus, by multiplying fish and bread to feed multitudes. He demonstrates that he can take even the molecules themselves and make them do whatever he pleases. He displayed his authority over the biological world by healing the sick and curing those with leprosy. He displayed his authority over the genetic world by opening the eyes of a man that was born blind, a paralytic, and opening the ears of a person that was born deaf. He displayed his authority over the spiritual world by shutting down Satan as they faced off in the desert and Satan sought to tempt him by commanding demons to leave their victims. And remember, they cowered in his presence. Do you remember how they, they said, have you come to judge us before the time? Like, is this now the moment? They recognize his authority and his power. <coughs> He displayed even his authority over life and death by raising the daughter of Jairus, the son of a widow in Nain, and his very good friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus has absolute authority, and it's, it's very, very evident. By all accounts, Leading up to this moment, Jesus is winning at life. And from the disciples' viewpoint, Jesus seems to be primed to make a move for power in Jerusalem. Yet even with this display of his power that has been occurring throughout the life of his ministry, Jesus has always seemed to be sort of demure about public opinion. When the crowds wanted to make him king, he slipped away. When the multitudes followed him from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other looking for some more of that lip-smacking good bread, he runs them off with a comment that sounds like an invitation to cannibalism. When healing some, rather than telling them to brag about it and boast to everyone, he told them to be silent and only show themselves to the priests that they might be made ceremonially clean once again. When the crowds would flock to Jesus, Jesus always seemed to retreat, to step out of the limelight, to tuck himself away in secret. 
But in this final week, things have changed. He's taken a much different approach. Jesus has been asserting his authority, particularly in Jerusalem. You'll remember that Jesus comes riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, and the people began to proclaim Hosanna. It was a direct reference to a messianic psalm from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And they were saying, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save now. It was a clear reference that they were hailing him as the messianic king. And remember, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were gathered around. They said, hey, 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 you're going to get us in trouble with the Romans? Tell your disciples to pipe down. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus' response is not, I'm going to sidestep the limelight or I'm going to step out of the way. He's no longer hiding. Instead, he boldly proclaims, look, this... This moment right here is so valuable, so important, so earth-shattering that if these people shut up their praises, the rocks themselves will begin to get vibronic and they would sing out praises to their maker. He inserts himself in the temple. Whatever that shyness was that Jesus was exhibiting before, it's gone now in this final week. He comes into the temple, grabs the tables of the money changers, spills everything all over the floor and is whipping people. Asserting his right to cleanse his father's house under the authority of Scripture. The disciples commenting on that, they said, oh man, the, the zeal of the Lord's house is overcome, right? Jesus shuts down and confounds every rabbi and religious authority that is present throughout the week. In teaching after teaching, and confrontation after confrontation, and test after test, he demonstrates the wisdom of God that cannot be thwarted by man. He's passed every inspection. And now the Lamb of God has come to the end of this week. He's now at the end of the week. Judas has been dismissed from the Last Supper to go and betray him. The temple guards, even now at this moment, are being assembled to go and find him later this evening. He knows that his actions during this week have placed him and his authority in direct opposition to the religious and political powers of his day. So knowing that he has but mere hours before going to the cross, he turns to his disciples to prepare them. There was a moment a while back where I was still a much younger man. I was in this thing called the School of Ministry, and it was kind of like a trade school for guys that had a heart to, to be in ministry. And uh, we lived at a, a church for a year, and during the course of that year, we, we loaded up onto this big yellow bus, and we drove from Medford, Oregon, all the way down to Honduras. Uh, that big yellow bus that we lived on, sweated on, lived in the sort of swamplands on, 
uh, and found out that our, you know, our, our cotton stuff had just like molded and mildewed. And I, I won't tell you about the bad tacos we got, but I'll just tell you it was messy, right? That bus got forever dubbed the Stinky Twinkie because it was just this yellow, nasty bus making its way through Mexico and Central America. But there was one night where we stopped in the middle of Mexico in a little town called Oaxaca. And we had pulled up. We were just literally being led by the Lord every day. We, we knew what our destination was, but we were just sort of praying each day, like, Lord, show us what we can do along the way. And so we pulled into this little place, and then we're building a school, and uh, there was nobody there. They needed laborers to help lay the foundation, pour the concrete. And if you've ever done concrete work in Mexico, you know, there's like no concrete, like trucks or, or even mixers. What you do is you make a volcano, and you, you make this pile of sand and rock and cement mix, and you just kind of keep shoveling everything into the middle until it turns into concrete, and then you run it by wheelbarrow over to uh, wherever you're, you're pouring concrete. It's a lot of work. But here, 36 guys roll up, and we're there. We lay concrete. It was just an awesome time, and there was this little cocina, little kitchen that was there, and it was hollow, and uh, adobe, and concrete, so like, like a total echo chamber, you know, like when you're singing in the bathroom, right? It just had that kind of acoustic thing that was happening, so we decided after dinner, we're going to do a little bit of worship, and we began to worship. Probably, I'm not, I'm not kidding you, this is probably one of the, the most profound moments of worship I've ever had in my life. It was one of those moments where the presence of God just came down in such a real, tangible way. And, and, and God was doing something really unique and special that night. So as we're worshiping, there was a guy there whose name was John Stockton. And, and Johnny uh, was just weeping while, while we worshiped. And in the middle of it, he just sort of interrupts the worship. And he says, guys, I've got to share this with you. I, I just got to share what it is that God has shown me tonight. And he was, began talking about that moment where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And he says, you know, if there's any time where Jesus has a right to be selfish, he's poured out his life energy in loving others. If there's any time he has a right to say, hey guys, listen, I know you got your issues, but tonight's really about me. I'm about to go to the cross. I'm about to, you know, sacrifice myself for the sins of the world. It's really about me tonight, so just, you know, chill out. But that's not the attitude that he takes. Instead, with mere hours before he goes to the cross to bear the sins of the world, he's looking at his disciples whom he loves and saying, is there anything else that I can do? How else can I equip them? What else can I do to minister to their need and to meet them in the middle of this? Johnny shared through tears in that moment about the servant-heartedness of our Savior. And this is the moment that we're at right here, mere hours from the cross. And Jesus is looking for ways to equip and to serve His disciples because He knows they're about to be thrust into something that's going to be very, very difficult for them to understand.
So, he turns his sights to his disciples to equip them for all that will follow. We know from John's gospel that Jesus has begun telling his disciples that he is leaving, and they're confused by this, and, and, and he tells them that they can't follow him according to John 13, 33. Peter is, is struggling to really understand this, and so he asks, well, where are you going? And proceeds to claim that he will follow Jesus anywhere, even if that means his life. And this statement seems to be what prompts this passage right here that we're looking at. Jesus has a heart to prepare his disciples. So we're going to divide up our text today really into two sections. And those two sections will have sort of sub components or, or ideas for us to, under, uh, to focus on and understand. So the two sections are Jesus' preparation of Peter, verses 31 to 34, and Jesus' preparation of the disciples, verses 35 to 38. So Jesus' preparation of Peter, 31 to 34, and Jesus' preparation of the disciples, 35 to 38, for those of you who are note-takers. So Jesus, then, is about to equip them, and, he, and he's going to tell Simon Peter a few things that are important for us to key in on. So on that first section there, there are really four categories that I want you to keep track of. First of all, he's going to say to Peter, Peter, you have an enemy. Second of all, he's going to say, Peter, you have an intercessor. Thirdly, you have redemption. And fourthly, you have weakness as he prepares Peter. You see, Peter had a unique calling. Jesus had given to Peter what he calls the keys of the kingdom. Okay? Now, this is a direct reference when, when Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 19, after his declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he says to him, I'm giving to you the keys of the kingdom. This is a direct reference to the fact that Peter is the one who, the steward who will come and unlock the door of the gospel or the gates of the kingdom, both to the Jews and to those outside of the house of Israel, to the Gentiles. And you'll remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls, who is it that stands up and preaches the gospel and 3,000 people get saved? It's, it's Peter. He, door number one, right? Gate one. He opens it up and the floodgates come in, you know, and people get saved. 3,000 people. And it's, a, it's a magnificent moment in the scriptures. Then if you track a little bit further into the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, you find that Peter is at a tanner's house, has been given a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven filled with all kinds of unclean animals, and, and then the command comes, rise, Pete, kill, and eat. Probably one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible, because it's what frees us up to have bacon. Peter says, no, I'm, I can't do that. I have never eaten anything unclean at all, you know. And the command comes back, you know, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And Peter then goes from there to Cornelius' house and he sees the significance of that vision 
because God is opening up the other side of the gates, if you will, to the Gentiles to allow them in. And he preaches the gospel to these Gentiles, to Cornelius, the centurion there, and the gospel has effect, and the same spirit that fell on them in Acts 2 is the same spirit that now falls upon the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, and the gates are opened. Peter has a unique calling in the Lord. God's got future plans for him. And with this calling, Peter is also wearing a big, fat bullseye right on his back. And Satan wants to take him out. Not only does Peter have a unique calling, but Peter has a unique gifting. Peter seems to be the boldest of the disciples. Now, he gets a bad rap a lot of times. I heard one preacher at one point say that Peter is the one apostle with a foot-shaped mouth, right? Because he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But I think sometimes maybe we, we don't really give Peter the credit that he is due. Actually, that boldness that sometimes got him to stick his foot in his mouth was also the very same thing that made him incredibly perceptive about things that were happening. Remember when, when Jesus encountered Peter in Luke 5, 8 and, and asked to preach from his boat. Peter listens to him and then Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. He's like, hey, we, we don't catch fish in the daytime. <laughs> you know, and that's something we do at night. I've been fishing all night. Let's just go home. A big haul of fish comes in and, and Peter's immediate response is to call Jesus Lord. And he says, Lord, curios." Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And he falls flat on his face in the presence of Jesus because he caught a bunch of fish. Peter is the one who had the boldness to meet Jesus on the water while the others watch from safety inside the boat. Remember that story in Matthew 14? Jesus comes walking on the water and Peter's inside the boat and all the other disciples are like, it's a ghost. And, and then they figure out that it's Jesus and, Jesus and Peter's like, hey, if it's really you, tell me to come out there. The other disciples are just sort of sitting back going, we'll, we'll see if this works. <laughs> right? Not Peter. One foot over the edge of the boat. For a bit... Peter walks on water with Jesus. None of the other apostles could make that claim. Sure, he fell in. He got his eyes on the waves. But he walked on water with Jesus. Only two people in the history of the world that have done that. Other than Mr. Miyagi. I hear It was Peter that spoke up when everyone was abandoning Jesus over the fact that he said that he was the bread of life and inviting them to come and eat of his body and drink of his blood. People took that as a clear reference to cannibalism. They didn't understand it. And Jesus doesn't explain it away. He doesn't give them answers. He doesn't say, hey, well, actually, you know, okay, so there's this meal. We're going to have this meal. It's going to be representative of my sacrifice on the cross. He doesn't do any of that, right? He just like watches people leave. And in the middle of that, Jesus turns around to his disciples, to the 12 that are with him, and he says, what about you guys? You're going to leave too? 
Because they're wrestling with it too. He perceives that they are struggling with what he has just said. He doesn't explain it to them. He says, what do you guys think? You're going to leave too? Peter is the one who stands up and says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Remember, it was Peter that recognized Jesus as the Christ when asked, who do you say that I am in Luke 9, 20? Peter has a unique gifting for being able to see what is happening. And it's a part of what makes him a leader among leaders. It's part of what makes him have such a big target on his back. And it's part of the reason that Jesus is now singling Peter out in particular to deal with him, to prepare him, to encourage him. So he's going to say four things to Peter. First of all, you have an enemy. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. First of all, that doesn't mean much to us, but in that world, everybody knew what sifting meant. It meant that you cut down the stalks of wheat, you gathered them together in a big bushel, you tied them up, then you took them out on a concrete floor, and you just went... Bam! And you smash them against the floor until all the kernels of wheat scattered across it. Then you would take them and you would rub the, the kernels of wheat on the floor and then you would shake them through a sieve and toss them up in the air. And they had these winnowing fans that would take the outer husk of the wheat and blow that light sort of feathery material off as it was broken away from the kernel of wheat. It was a, a violent process. When, when Peter hears that Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, it is not something he's going to feel encouraged by. It's going to involve real trial, real struggle. Now, it's interesting here that between those two verses, in verse 31 and then in verse 32, in verse 31, twice the word you is stated, but in the Greek... It is plural. So in other words, he's saying to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. All of the disciples are going to face a trial. You're all going to go through it. It's at the hand of Satan. He has demanded permission to do this. And he wants to test you and see what is there. Ultimately, he wants your faith to fail. You know, Satan's goal is to destroy faith. I mean, if you think about the story of Job, we, I think most of us, hopefully, are familiar with the story. Here's this, this guy who's just a faithful guy. He gets up every morning, makes sacrifices for his kids. He's just a guy that loves God and, and cares about his family and is a good steward and he's wise and wealthy and there's all this good that is happening. And then there's this little exchange in heaven, unbeknownst to Job, between God and Satan, where Satan says, well, of course he loves you. You won't let me touch him. You take away his comfort, though, and he'll curse you to your face. 
God says, no, not my servant. We forget that we have an enemy. And listen, listen. One of the main ways that the enemy attacks God's people is by coming to them in a moment of weakness and vulnerability. By taking away comfort. Why? Because in comfort, we have a sense of God's goodness, right? We have this internal sort of sense that God is in control and He loves me and things are good and I I feel like God is loving. When the comfort is gone, the deeper questions begin to bubble up. They percolate up through our souls. Is He good? If good things aren't happening, is He loving? I know he has power and he can do something. Why isn't he doing something? Does he not care? Does he not love me enough to intervene in my situation? Satan attacks our comfort in order to undermine our faith. And and Peter is well aware of this. Matter of fact, it's Peter who would later write in 1 Peter 5.8, we have an enemy who roams about looking like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's Peter who says, hey, church, keep track of this. Our enemy's an opportunist and he's just waiting for that moment where he can pounce. So he says to Peter, Peter, you have an enemy and he has desired to sift you like he's made this request before the Father. And then secondly, he says this, but you will also have an intercessor. Satan, you know, is pictured throughout the Bible as the accuser of the brethren. He's constantly tattling on God's people like some sort of two-year-old with a bone to pick. Constantly accusing them. Constantly making requests to attack them in big and small ways. Now, what is also true is that God has provided for us an advocate or a defense attorney to make requests as well. And this advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's this great story. We don't have time to go there, but if you want to write it down, in Zechariah chapter 3, there's this great story about Joshua, the high priest, where he is brought before the throne of God, the judgment seat. Ultimately, the presence of God is there, and Satan is there. And what's he doing? He's accusing Joshua. For lots of reasons, I'm sure, Satan is fully aware of Joshua's humanity. And he's there in his priestly vestments. They're all covered in dirt and mud and blood and guts and whatever else. He just does not look like he's fit to stand before the king of the universe, right? And in the midst of that, the accuser, Satan, is there pointing out all of his flaws. Well, look at him and he did this and look at that and what the... And what can he do? What can Joshua do? He, he's right. The accuser is right. All the flaws are there. What can Joshua do? He has no defense because the king of all the earth sees it all. There's nothing he can hide. He has no defense. There is nothing he can say to justify himself. But then comes the advocate. And the advocate comes in in that amazing, beautiful story, a perfect picture 
of Jesus. And he says, is this not a brand that I have plucked from the fires? Haven't I rescued Joshua the high priest? Haven't I taken him out of the flames of hell? Haven't I saved him and rescued him? And the accuser is silenced. And Zechariah, who's watching this heavenly vision unfold, he begins to get into the story. He's like, give him a new turban. Give him new robes. Right? Like He's, like, he's clean. He's saved. The accuser can't do anything. Oh, man. Guys, you and I have an intercessor. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I want you to just picture in your mind, there you are, you're in the courtroom, you're standing before the judge of all the earth, and here comes Satan, and he is reminding God of every sin you have ever committed, every word that is out of place, every thought that is wrong, every temptation you have fallen to, and, you, and he's there bringing it all up, and you have no defense. But then comes your advocate, Jesus Christ, and he defends you, not just with words, but with the wounds in his hands. And with the blood that he shed upon the altar. And he says, is not this one that I have plucked from the fires of hell? Is this not one that I have saved? Now, a question for you. Here's the question. I want you to let this settle. Before the throne of God the Father, whose word weighs more? The accuser of the brethren... Or the Son of God. You see how powerful that is? So when Jesus says to Peter, But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail, it is powerful. It's interesting, there's a little sort of nugget of truth here that I think is powerful. And that is when you look at the word fail in the Greek, it is this word, it is this word eclipo, which is where we get our word eclipse. So here's the picture. Here's, here's what's happening there. He says, I prayed for you that your sin would not eclipse, block out the sun, block out the grace the provision, the forgiveness, the nature, the character of who I am. I'm praying for you that your failings would not keep you blind in the dark about who I am and what I have done. I don't want it to eclipse this. And I prayed that for you. Oftentimes, that is what happens with us, isn't it? Our feelings, our failings, and our feelings seem bigger than God's grace. And yet, God's grace is eternal. <laughs> and our failings are so finite in comparison. You have an enemy, you have an intercessor. Thirdly, you have redemption. Verse 32, he says... I pray for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. 
In other words, when you've gotten through this, Peter, and you've come out the other side, and you're on your way back, you've seen my goodness, you've seen my grace and forgiveness, use your failing to strengthen the brothers. Talk about your weakness. Tell them what happened. Tell them that I'm enough, that I'm a, a Savior who can actually save. I'm, I'm going to use even your failings in a redemptive way. Don't run from them. Use them to proclaim my faithfulness to save and to forgive. Your failings do not have to eclipse your faith. Fourthly, he says to Peter, and you have a weakness. So Peter begins to argue back with Jesus in verse 33. Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus tells Peter here in this passage that he is going to fail before he actually fails. Now, this is an amazing moment because if you catch, if you catch this, there's something really incredibly freeing about it. This is not permission to not fight against sin, right? In other words, Jesus isn't saying, hey, Peter, you're going to fail, so, you know, why try? No. But it's compassion for when he fails. He's saying, I, I saw this already. I knew it was coming. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't shock me. I've already prayed. And I'm expecting that after you get through your failing, that you're going to take that failing and turn it around and use it to strengthen other people. Sometimes, guys, we are way more focused on our sin than Jesus is. This is not permission. It is compassion. But he's letting Peter know that his sin and future denial does not disqualify him from being a recipient of the grace that Jesus will provide. And so he is preparing him. You're going to blow it. You're going to blow it. And I know you're going to blow it. But I'm praying that you're going to come right back around to see my grace. And when you do, I want you to take that grace and talk about it. Proclaim it. Tell everybody about it. Magnify it. And then he goes to prepare the disciples. In verses 35 to 38, he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsacks or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, No, nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and go and buy one. Two things that you need to see about Jesus' preparation of the disciples. First of all, He's saying, you have enjoyed a season of rest. You have enjoyed a season of rest. Second thing that you need to see there is that now you need to prepare yourself for the test. You need to prepare yourself for the test. You've enjoyed a season of rest, verse 35. Now prepare yourself for the test, verses 36 and following. There's preparation, and now there needs to be implementation. You've enjoyed the time where I have taken care of you, but now it's time to walk it out and get ready. 
Verse 35, when he says, I, I provided for you miraculously, he's saying, I have given you a season of, of, of rest. You don't have, you didn't have to worry, but my physical presence is leaving now. And now you're going to need to exercise wisdom. You're going to need to be wise about how you steward the resources that you have. You may even need to be prepared to defend yourself in self-defense. Now, the disciples think that he's talking about some sort of physical warfare that is going on, right? But they're not going to overthrow Rome with two swords, right? So Jesus, kind of knowing that they're not understanding, he says, listen, I'm telling you that this scripture must be fulfilled from Isaiah 53. What is written of me has its fulfillment. And then he just says to them, it's enough. Let's not talk about this anymore. And we're done talking about this. Let's, let's begin to make our way towards the garden. Now, there is always a season of rest that prepares us for the coming test. God is good like that. Listen, if you're in here this morning and you're in a season where things are going well, and matter of fact, it's like it's hard to be faithful in prayer because you're like, I don't even know what to pray for. Like, I have everything that I need. Things are good. My kids are healthy. My wife is amazing. Everything's going great. That's awesome. But listen, that is the time to, like a sponge, soak up everything that God is investing in you. That's the time to dive deep into God's Word. That's a time where we can grow slack real easy because it's comfortable, right? But even more so, that is the time that we should be pressing in and worshiping Jesus and drawing close to Him and enjoying His presence because, listen, after the season of rest, there always comes a season of test. And it's preparation for implementation. Listen, there's a few things, seven things that I want you to take note of that the disciples would have taken away from this verbal exchange. And, and probably a part of the reason why it was so important that they write it down and preserve it for us thousands of years later. First thing to take note of is this, that temptation and trials are to be expected because we all have an enemy. We all have an enemy. Temptations and trials are to be expected because we all have an enemy. Secondly, Jesus is personally invested in seeing us through. He's personally invested. Remember how I said that the Greek there in the first verse, in verse uh, 31 is plural. It's the y'all statement. And in verse 32, he says to Peter, but I have prayed for you specifically, individually. In other words, even though you're all suffering testing, Peter, I want you to know something that you specifically are on my heart and on my mind, and I'm interceding for you singularly. Jesus is personally invested in seeing us through those seasons. Jesus expects our weakness and plans to redeem it even when we fail. Now, this is not permission. This is compassion, right? Even when we fail, it just makes us run to Jesus even harder. 
Satan can't win. If we, if we sin, we run to Jesus and find that he's a ready and able Savior. And if we win, it is because the strength of Jesus is able to deliver. He can't win. Seasons of rest are preparation for implementation and the test. Number four. Number five. Our latest failing does not define our future usefulness. Our latest failing does not define our future usefulness. Number six, Jesus expects us to use pragmatic wisdom in the absence of his physical presence. Sometimes we we get really spiritual, almost hyper-spiritual, and we think, well, God will provide, and all these different things. Jesus tells his disciples, be wise, buy a knapsack, have a money purse, get a couple of swords, be ready. You got work to do and you're going to need supplies to do it. Make sure that you get that stuff. Don't pit the spiritual against the practical. They're one and the same. They work together in tandem. And number seven, the disciples' view of the Messianic kingdom was way too narrow. All they could think about is a physical kingdom there in Rome or they're in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning, casting off Roman oppressors, and Jesus is like, no, I want the world. I don't want Jerusalem alone. I want to redeem the world. Their gospel was too narrow. Jesus had something bigger in mind. So we're going to do something right now. We've got about 10 minutes left on the clock. I know that we have varying saints in here at varying degrees of maturity, and, and some of you, this may be a little bit uncomfortable, but um, I, I, I think we need to do it anyway. Sam, yeah, come on up, buddy. Sam's going to be playing a little bit of music for us, uh, because I know that right now, here in our presence, there are some of you who are currently in seasons of testing. Now, there's some here that are enjoying a great season of rest, and things are going good, and it's hard for you to ever think about, even think about what to pray for. But there are others of you who are being pressed to the brink right now, and you need encouragement and strength. So what we're going to do is, while Sam plays, I'm going to list off a few situations here. And if that's you, if that's what you are going through, I'm going to have you stand where you are. And then saints around you, I want you to look around and see if anybody is standing at the end of that. And then you're going to lay hands on them and pray for them for a few minutes. This is important. This is what the body of Christ is supposed to be doing, right? This is how we work to encourage and strengthen one another. Now, laying on of hands, just a brief explanation of that. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to commit something to God, you would lay your hands on it and offer it to God. That's what we're doing by laying on of hands. There's no weird heebity-jeebity stuff that's going on. We're just saying, God, this person belongs to you. You purchased them with your blood. Now, God, hear our prayers. Respond. Meet them in their need. So, if you are here this morning, and you are going through a season of testing, we want to pray for you. And as I list these things off, if this is you, if this is what you identify with, if it's, it's you that the finger of the Holy Spirit is prompting, there's no reason you should react to this list. If it's not you, if it is you, you will have a reaction. You'll feel like, I should get prayed for. That's the Holy Spirit saying, that you're this person. Receive it. Receive it because saints who are struggling, we love you. And we want God to work his will in your lives. 
So if you are here this morning and you're suffering from suffering physically, you have some sort of physical issue that doctors cannot figure out or cannot fix and you are in a season of just being tested because the comfort of just moving around in your physical body has been affected. We want to pray for you. Would you stand this morning? We want to lift you up to the Lord. If you're going through a season of deep emotional pain, or loss and you are mourning or grieving or just flat out depressed. We want to pray for you this morning because dear brother or dear sister, we love you and we want you to do well. We want to pray for you that God will strengthen your faith and encourage your heart today. If you are wrestling with your faith and you fear this morning, and you're losing your faith in God. You're wrestling with it. Would you stand, dear saint? We want to pray for you because God loves you and does not want your faith to fail. So would you stand? If you're battling anxiety and a fear that is affecting your relationships, your sleep, and your health, would you stand? If you're here this morning and you are battling addiction and you can't seem to get victory and that sin just keeps beating you down and you can't seem to get on top of it, dear brother, dear sister, we love you and we want God to give you victory over that sin. We want to pray for you this morning. We want to encourage you and strengthen you. And lastly, certainly not least if you are on the brink of or in the midst of financial ruin and you are pressed financially beyond your means and it's causing you to despair this morning we want to pray for you and encourage you and strengthen you would you please stand brothers and sisters would you look around these are people who need your love and your prayer this morning. So I'm going to have you get up from your seats, go to where they are, surround them, lay hands on them, and pray for them. Those are a few who are in the middle. If you just in one sentence, in one sentence, just tell the people around you what you need prayer for. If you're a person who needs prayer and you're, you're standing but nobody's gathered around, you just stick your hand up in the air. We want to be there for you. We want to pray for you. Okay, in one sentence, tell the people what you need prayer for this morning. Okay, saints, go to work. Lift them up. Pray for them.